X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Tuesday, June 15th. Today, back in the day 100 years ago, Bessie Coleman became the first African-American woman and the first Native American to earn a pilot's license. Coleman was born in 1892 in Atlanta, Texas. She was raised sharecropping in Waxachie, Texas, where she completed elementary school in a segregated one-room schoolhouse. At the age of 23, Coleman moved to Chicago to live with her brothers. There, she heard stories from pilots who had flown in World War I and decided she wanted to become a pilot. No schools in America would teach African Americans or women. Coleman was encouraged by her friend Robert S. Abbott, publisher of the influential newspaper, The Chicago Defender, to study abroad. Abbott raised funds for Coleman to travel to France to take flying lessons and get her license. She got her license 100 years ago today, making her the first African-American woman and the first Native American to earn a pilot's license. She became known as Queen Bess and would perform stunt flights at exhibitions all over the country. Coleman was also an outspoken advocate for civil rights and would speak to her audiences about racism. Coleman died in a plane accident in 1926, but she had already influenced a new generation of pilots. And today, back in the day in 1859, the Pig War began. Due to some confusion about the geography of the channel separating Vancouver Island from the continent, the border dispute was hardly resolved. In 1856, an international commission deliberated the boundary once more, this time scrutinizing each strait and island. No agreement was reached. The ambiguity turned into conflict exactly 13 years after the treaty was signed when an American farmer living on San Juan Island killed a pig that was eating his crop. The pig was owned by an Irish worker for the Hudson's Bay Company. He and the farmer argued and involved the law. The dispute escalated to military involvement, though no one was killed in any fighting. The two sides agreed on joint military occupation until 1872, when an outside arbitrator gave San Juan Island to the U.S. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Oregon State Representative Pam Marsh chair of the Committee on Energy and Environment. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. A new ferry will connect North Portland to downtown starting next summer. The idea of a Portland passenger ferry has cropped up every few years. There have been studies done, routes proposed, and schedules drafted, but no one has ever actually managed to get the project on its feet. All that could change next year. The nonprofit Friends of Frog Ferry announced a pilot project that could launch as early as next summer. The 70-passenger ship would carry Portlanders from Cathedral Park in St. John's to River Place in downtown Portland. The 25-minute trip will cost passengers just $3. If the pilot program is successful, organizers say the operation could evolve into a system with seven ships and nine stops along the river. Friends of Frog Ferry also hope that the ships will eventually be 100% electric. After years of stalled plans, there's still a lot of skepticism, but this time really could be different. 
For one, there's a lot more local and private funding. The city of Portland is also applying for an additional $3.3 million in federal funding. And the Ferry Project has powerful supporters, including former Mayor Sam Adams and the Cathedral Park Neighborhood Association. Throughout its history, Oregon has had over 500 passenger ships. Now, it has only three. But this year could just be the moment that Oregon's sunken dreams of a passenger ship resurface. And now your daily dose of data. 64.3% of eligible Oregonians now have at least one vaccination shot. Out of the 36 counties in Oregon, 22 have over 50% vaccination and 11 have over 60% vaccination. In 2020, Oregon voters gave lawmakers the power to regulate political donations. But this year, that's unlikely to happen. Ballot Measure 107 left the door open for state and local governments to limit campaign contributions and spending. Oregon is one of just five states that have zero limits on campaign spending. That means local political campaigns have become increasingly expensive. And many are worried about private interests having an oversized influence on state and local politics. Still, this legislative session bills that actually restrict campaign finance have gained little traction. Even House Bill 2680, which would have let candidates use public money if they limited private donations, is in jeopardy. Both Portland and New York City use this public financing system. HB 2680 would extend the rules statewide. The bill is currently stalled without Senate support. A group of 30 democracy, labor, and transparency advocates wrote a letter asking Senate President Peter Courtney to advance the bill. But if lawmakers can't find a way to regulate political donations soon, it's likely that it will be left up to the public to tackle the issue with another ballot measure in 2022. Mandatory minimum sentencing laws won't change this legislative session. Oregon voters passed Measure 11 in 1994. The measure set minimum standards for crimes such as murder, assault, rape, and robbery. In the ensuing years, critics have skewered mandatory minimum sentences for being ineffective and increasing racial disparities. Still, changing Measure 11 in Oregon would require a two-thirds majority vote. That means several Senate Republicans would have to be on board. Senate Bill 401 targeted Measure 11 this session. It would have given judges more power over sentencing for assault and robbery, the two most common Measure 11 crimes. District attorneys for Multnomah, Deschutes, and Wasco County all supported changes to Measure 11. But when the Oregon District Attorneys Association came out against the bill, the tides had turned for Senate Bill 401. Now, at a time when criminal justice reform is supposedly a priority for Oregon lawmakers, Senate Bill 401 is dead in the water. There have been few major reforms to Oregon's criminal justice system this legislative session. Instead, lawmakers have favored minor concessions and small tweaks to the existing system. Portland teachers held a day of action to speak out against bills that restrict and censor curriculum. Nationwide, Republicans have proposed bills that aim to silence classroom discussions about race and racism in America. These bills are directly related to Trump's 1776 commission, 
which supposedly worked to promote patriotic education. But mostly it attacked critical race studies and accurate reckonings with America's colonial history. On June 12th, teachers nationwide took a stand against educational censorship. In Portland, public educators held teach-ins at four locations around the city, sharing stories about some of the city's most difficult moments in history. The events focused on the Vanport community and flood, Japanese-American internment, the erasure of Chinese workers and asylum patients at Lone Fir Cemetery, and the history of the Holocaust. Educator and organizer Ursula Wolf Roca said, quote, No one teacher would teach all four of these things in the same year, but I think a full and robust accounting of Oregon's history and in the context of U.S. history should definitely touch on all four of the topics. In Oregon, there are no bills to restrict these types of lessons. In fact, there is at least one bill that would require public schools to provide anti-racist education. But local public schools still deal with pushback when including controversial subjects in the classroom. And we should say controversial to some. So as long as public classrooms are under attack, local educators will continue to have difficult but necessary conversations about the past, present, and future. And finally, some good news. Ground Control, the popular downtown barcade, is reopening on Wednesday. Have you been stuck inside playing Asteroids, Galaga, and Street Fighter all by yourself, like me? Well, get your quarters ready, folks, because Portland's oldest barcade is back. The 21-year-old business is opening up half its gaming floor with limited capacity and spaced-out games. There's no news yet on the arcades, tournaments, and DJ nights, so expect a more casual time gaming, at least for now. It's yet another reminder that things were never game over for Portland and that we've still got at least a couple lives remaining. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, Representative Pam March discusses environmental legislation from this year's legislative session in Salem. Joining us now, Representative Pam Marsh. Good morning, Representative. Good morning. So great to be here with you. Thanks for coming. We appreciate it. Um, There's a lot going on, and uh, you're on a couple of different committees. We'll address um, one of the others, uh, the House Special Committee on Wildfire Recovery, in a minute. But first, we wanted to talk, talk about the environmental issues that are a top priority for Oregonians. What are some of the ways your committee is addressing these issues? Well, we've had a very full um, and engaged session. We are now just about at the end of our um, piece of work within the legislative session, but we've addressed a number of issues and sent them out of our committee to the House floor, to the Ways and Means Committee. With a large emphasis, our committee is energy and environment. And uh, we I would say that our, our emphasis area this session was really around energy issues. Um, we sent a bill Uh, House Bill 2475, which addresses energy affordability over to the Senate. It's now passed um, that uh, that body and is being signed by the governor. And basically, that's a that's a landmark bill because it allows the Public Utility Commission, which regulates um, our utilities to establish low income rates. We've never been able to do that before. We've had to support low income 
um, individuals by finding subsidies and getting them to sign up for it. So to the extent that we can move forward with an actual low income rate structure that provides some permanent stability for low income customers. Huge step forward, a big environmental justice priority. And we were very proud. I think that was one of the very first bills that we moved out of our committee. So that's how we started off. Excellent um, start. <laughs> we passed um, a, an electric vehicle bill that was a governor's priority. And that bill will provide subsidies for purchase of, of electric vehicles by low-income Oregonians. It'll also allow the utilities to um, implement the infrastructure that we need for electric vehicles all over the state. Um, that was one of our, our next efforts. Um, we passed legislation that will allow the Energy Trust, which provides a lot of the energy efficiency programming across the state to continue doing its work. And then um, the, the very um, biggest undertaking that we had, still in progress here in the building, was the passage of House Bill 2021, which will establish 100% clean electricity in the state of Oregon by the year 2040 really sets us on a course to make sure that the energy sources that are feeding our electricity grid come from renewable sources. Huge step forward for the state of Oregon. Wow, that's outstanding. Our guest today is uh, from the Oregon House of Representatives, Pam Marsh. Um, so one of the, um, you mentioned social justice, there's also environmental justice. Um, Absolutely. Now, SCR 17 was just adopted by the House. Can you tell us a bit about this measure and what it does? Sure. That that measure, in fact, came off the House floor yesterday. What it really does is it's a resolution. So um, there's not uh, an action behind it. But what it says is that the state of Oregon moving forward will really hold environmental justice as a high priority and ensure that environmental justice is reflected in policies and pieces of legislation and a fundamental tenet into the way that we move forward in the way that we do work. Well, can you tell our listeners what what is environmental justice? Well, we know that um, social and economic factors have meant that many of our low-income people of color um, neighbors have been the target of environmental problems. Very often, those are the people who live by the freeway where diesel pours out. Those are the people who live by utility substations where um, uh, other issues occur. And and recognizing that we have this historical pattern of really pushing environmental um, issues onto those populations, we are really working to reverse that. We are working to invest in um, uh, efforts to, to mitigate those factors, to ensure that all of the steps that we take forward really put the needs of people of color, low-income people, our most vulnerable populations front and center so that as we move toward a renewable future, as an example, we don't exacerbate um, conditions, underlying conditions, but rather we use those, move, those moves toward a new future as a means to really honor and um, uh, elevate the needs of low-income people and people of color. Two of my favorite words, honor and elevate. We can all do that for each other. This sounds phenomenal. Now, another responsibility of that committee includes uh, the states, the committee that we're talking about, uh, your committee, um, includes the state's recycling and waste system. So what, mm -hmm. have you, what have you learned about Oregon's trash? <laughs> 
Well, you know, since a few years ago, when China decided they didn't want all of our crappy recycling, um, we've struggled across the state to really figure out what we can recycle and to, to develop consistent systems. So this year, we're making a major breakthrough. Most of this work was done on the Senate side in the Energy and Environment Committee over there, now sitting in Ways and Means. But what we are attempting to do in partnership with the Department of Environmental Quality is to um, implement a statewide recycling system to establish standards and a baseline across the state and to make sure that all Oregonians have the opportunity to recycle um, many of the products um, that we know need to be recycled. And in doing so, the intention is to engage the producers, the people who are manufacturing and sending us these products and some of the logistics and the costs of, of developing recycling. The hope is when we do this and we involve producers, that that will also create an incentive for less packaging, more environmentally friendly packaging, because the whole effort, while recycling is critical, um, we've been doing that for decades, the real effort here should be to actually reduce the amount of product that we're creating. So very excited about the potential for a huge um, effort on the recycling front. Well, that's interesting because you you answered my next question, which was exactly that, the idea that it's not that, that we necessarily need to recycle more. We need to produce less waste, less plastic, stop using yeah. that stuff, uh, you know, try on every front in our own personal lives to reduce our, our uh, carbon footprint by stopping to use those things and having to recycle them in the first place. Well, I think coming out of the pandemic, we all kind of fell backwards on that front, or many of us did. Yeah. We bought food to go, still in the capital. Our lunchroom um, is still operating with big plastic containers every day ah. that I bring back to my office. It's horrific. Yeah. Um, Post-pandemic, I think we're going to need to resolve to get our um, bad patterns um, back, back under control and even to move much more forward. And that, that's really what that recycling legislation is intended to do, is to put us on a track toward um, very different habits and very different waste stream. My guest is uh, on the Committee on Energy and Environment in the Oregon House, Representative Pam Marsh. So you also serve as Vice Chair of the House Special Committee on Wildfire Recovery. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, after the devastating fires of last year, how are we preparing for this summer? Well, let me first um, note, my, my district is far, far from Portland. I am in Southern Jackson County, so my district is just above the California line. Wow. We were, uh, my, my little district was a target for the fires on September 8th. The communities of Talent and Phoenix, which sit in my district, which are right down the street from my neighborhood, um, lost 2,500 homes out of that. Um, displaced thousands and thousands of people, many of whom are still living in motels or cars, many of whom have left the community. So we're we're struggling. And one of my jobs as a representative from that area is to continue to talk about um, the impact of those fires and the long road ahead of us in terms of rebounding in any way and putting families back in homes and back in their communities. So a whole lot of our, our wildfire recovery committee has largely focused on calculating the loss and understanding what kind of investments we need to make to try to put communities um, back together again. Mm -hmm. And it's been it's been a huge undertaking, and it's frankly millions and millions of dollars um, needed for that. 
at the same time, we have to look forward. Um, and we have work that's been going on in the Senate to really address uh, a multitude of issues around uh, getting ready for, for a fire season. Because what we learned out of that fire is that we have to do everything. We have to start um, in our homes. We have to look at evacuation systems. We have to look at the state's emergency notification system. Um, we have to make sure that our homes are have defensive space around them and are as protected as possible. Then moving out, we have to make sure that our communities understand how to work together in an emergency, how to respond together, um, how to stay, stay as safe as possible. And looking beyond that, um, we have to look at uh, uh, really stabilizing the forests that surround many of our communities. It is typical, um, has been typical for our wildfire seasons to really start in the forest and move toward our developed areas. The irony of the fire that we experienced in Southern Oregon is that not an acre of forest was burned. That fire in the Almeida started in a developed area, burned through the core of a community um, down the asphalt highway, um, eating up 18 manufactured home parks, whole parks. Um, and, and as I noted, um, displacing thousands of households um, as a result of that and hundreds of businesses. So we should be more aware than ever that really all of our neighborhoods are at risk, not just those that are adjacent to forests. And we have to take personal and community responsibility for making sure that we are as ready for that as possible. And we have to address some of the under, acknowledge and address some of the underlying conditions, primarily climate. And that really circles back to the work on the Energy and Environment Committee. And that's perhaps why I'm so passionate about things like 100% clean. It's because on the, on the ground in Southern Oregon, I see climate change happening every day in, in the form of sustained drought and higher temperatures, turbulent storms, the loss of snowpack. I mean, climate change is a real thing. And now we have wildfire and a consistent pattern of wildfires. Um, and certainly there are many factors that go into wildfire, but there is no question that the changing climate is an exacerbating factor. So when I look at wildfire preparedness, I start with what's going on in my neighborhood and how do I know how to get out of it in an emergency? And I have to follow that continuum of issues to wind up um, at the responsibility for us to take charge of the deteriorating climate and our impact on it. Well, that is so, it, it's such a huge issue. It's, uh, it's hard to wrap your brain around almost, but as you say, taking it from beginning to end, and, and it, it all circles back to the environmental justice and social justice issues that you talk about, Representative Marsh. Um, I know I've read recent articles about the people who were displaced um, in paradise and the and in your community as well, who are, as you mentioned, still living in motels. And and this is a this is an, an environmental justice issue, I think, as well, because of the fact that there are people who are displaced um, through no fault of their own and have do not have the means to, um, you know, go buy a new home or, or just move somewhere else, but are trapped then in a, in a cycle, uh, perhaps, of home home houselessness. You know, in this country, we, we've heard those stories globally of our most vulnerable um, populations being displaced by climate, um, when islands disappear and habitats go away. But you are absolutely right. What we experienced in the Almeida fire is front and center, our own example of environmental justice and the vulnerability of those communities. 
the manufactured home parks that I referred to earlier, 50, we had 1,500 of those 2,500 um, homes that were burned up were manufactured homes and RVs, permanent homes for people. And within those manufactured home parks lived seniors, our working population, our agricultural workers, and many Latinx um, individuals and families. And those aren't people who qualify or who have been comfortable in signing up for FEMA. Um, they don't have, you know, the limited supports that we do have through FEMA haven't been available to them. Um, and, you know, it, it is exactly as you said, it is a um, example of the impact of um, these, these exterior events on a very vulnerable um, people of color kind of population mm. right, in, right in our own backyard. So it's not, you know, we started off thinking that was a global issue. Uh, folks, I have to tell you, it's a, it's a right front in front of our face kind of issue. So um, moving on in our last couple of minutes, Representative Marsh, what are some of the challenges facing the legislation uh, that you are hoping to pass this season? What, what are some of the challenges that you can foresee? Well, it's been a challenging session overall. Um, it started off with some violence back in December. We've had we've had to do most of the session at a distance because of the coronavirus. We've had quarantines. We've had ice storms that stopped things. We've had conduct issues. Um, it's it's been a roller coaster ride. Um, despite all of that, we're producing some very good work. We came in here looking at the pandemic and wildfire and racial justice, and I think you're going to see big accomplishments in all of those categories. Um, my last big environmental push is, well, there are two of them really. One is that recycling bill, but from my own committee, it's really 100% clean. We've taken that bill through a couple of different committees. It has widespread support from stakeholders, including environmental justice advocates, climate advocates, the utilities themselves, um, the renewable developers, labor. We really brought together a tremendous lineup of stakeholders. And I'm hoping what that, you know, at, at this point, we're down in Ways and Means, and um, we're hoping that we just have a clear path um, through Ways and Means to the floors and finally to the governor's pen. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, I hope that this wildfire season is a light one on your community and that it can continue to recover. Thank you. We, we hope so, too. But it's it's dry. It's hot. And things are not looking good. Um, so we're going to have to be um, lucky and smart. Good. Yeah. Words to live by. Thank you, Representative Pam Marsh uh, in the Oregon House, talking about environmental and social justice and all the work that she's doing. Uh, good luck this year in Salem. We appreciate all the hard work you do. Thanks so much for the chance to be here and talk about it. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thanks to Representative Marsh for joining the local and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.